Uh, it is a joy to have our brother Juan Sanchez with us. Juan is the preaching pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. A wonderful congregation, beloved friends there. Uh, Juan is also, High Point Baptist Church is a church in the Pillar Network, well connected with Nine Marks Ministries. Lots of overlap between our friends and other sister congregations. Uh, and so Juan comes as a friend of this church. Uh, please pray for our brother. He's going to speak this evening after his time here. He will speak at the North Carolina Pastors Conference in Greensboro this evening. And so we're thankful we can get him while he's here in town for that trip. And then, God willing, uh, a week from tomorrow, he'll be here again speaking as part of our Feed My Sheep Conference. So, Juan, thank you for your service to our church and blessing us and your contribution to the life of our fellowship here at Emmanuel. Please come now and minister the word to us, brother. Well, it is a joy to be here with you, finally, and I've been looking forward to this and praying for this time and praying for you. I bring you greetings from High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, from our elders and our congregation. Uh, we just finished working through the book of Esther, so if you wonder, why did, of all the texts, why did you choose Esther? Uh, that's why, because it's most fresh in my mind, and I thought it would be most helpful to you. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open your Bibles to Esther, and um, <clears throat> I'm going to read Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, but we're actually going to be working through Esther chapter 5 through chapter 8, verse 2. So we're going to work about th through three chapters of this text, and um, once you find that, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 just to kind of establish a context for where we're going this morning. Listen to the word of God. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask for your grace. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth and the beauty and the glory of your son Jesus. Father, would you minister by your word and through your spirit to all of us here this morning, regardless of what circumstance we find ourselves in, whether in plenty or in want, whether in joy or in suffering, whether in hardship or in seasons of fruitfulness. Father, we ask that you, by your grace, minister to us by your word, through your spirit, in Jesus' name. May be seated. Throughout history, the people of the world have always been in opposition to the people of God. The people of the world 
have not only opposed the people of God, but they've even sought to annihilate the people of God. And the ground for this is found in the fall and specifically in the curse to the serpent. In the curse to the serpent, if you remember, God talks to the serpent and he curses the serpent saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And so from that point, one of the results of the fall is that rather than just one line of offspring from the woman, the children of God, now there are two line of offspring from the woman, the children of God and the children of the devil. We see the reality of this in Genesis chapter 4, where from the woman comes Cain, whom she thinks is going to be the promised child, but it turns out he is not. And we see the conflict between the seed of the woman, Abel, and the seed of the serpent, Cain, right there, both coming from the woman, but this perpetual conflict between the people of God and the people of the world. Genesis chapter 5, we see death upon death upon death. Genesis chapter 6, and this just kind of continues throughout the history of the world. But it's not just individuals, it's also nations, isn't it? And so when God creates a nation from Abraham, this nation that we call Israel, we see this opposition of the people of the world and the people of God. We see it in Israel and Egypt. Egypt oppresses the people of God, enslaves the people of God. We see this in Israel and Assyria. Assyrian nation comes and destroys the northern kingdom. We see this in Assyria and Babylon. The Babylonian nation comes and oppresses and takes into slavery the people of God in Jerusalem and in Judah. We even see this in the church in Rome. This, this continues as we see the people of God and the people of the world, and the people of the world are in constant enmity against the people of God, seeking to oppress, to persecute, and even to annihilate if possible. And when we come to the book of Esther, in the period of Esther, Israel once again finds itself opposed and powerless in a Persian empire. King Ahasuerus, or by his Greek name, King Xerxes, is the king in this time. And the people of God are under oppression of one particular government official. His name is Haman. As you have uh, read, I'm sure, Esther, and you're familiar with Haman, Haman devised a plot to annihilate the Jews, to annihilate the people of God, to kill, destroy, and to annihilate the people of God. And he's been able to enact that into law. Just as we read in Psalm 94, the wicked enact injustice in laws. But there's hope here. And we read that hope in Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Mordecai seems to know enough about Israel's history and about Israel's God to understand that this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God will be faithful and he will deliver his people. One of the unique aspects of the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned. But Mordecai seems to have this kind of confident hope that deliverance will come. And then he says to Esther, maybe that's why you're here. Maybe that's why God has placed you here is for this deliverance. And so what, what is their response? Well, we saw that in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 4. Let's fast. I think we're meant to understand that they're not just fasting, but fasting and prayer go together. There are echoes of Joel chapter 2 here. And so even though God is never mentioned, and I would 
put before you that Esther and Mordecai are not models for us on how to live in exile like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. There is a mixture of good and sin in them and in their decision-making. And so Esther is a little bit confusing at times to read. But what we see is something fascinating here. The, the question the book of Esther raises is simply this. Is God really present to deliver his people when he does no mighty acts, offers no prophetic words, and performs no miracles? You see, we all want God to save in Exodus types of ways. But in the book of Esther, we see God delivering in Esther kind of ways. And the reason the book of Esther is so helpful for us today is because this is how we relate more to God than Israel, isn't it? Because sometimes when we go through things, we wonder, God, are you really there? God, do you really hear me? I see no miracles. There's no new revelation. God, are you able to deliver your people when you seem silent or it feels like you're not around? And I think this is the value of the book of Esther. Here's how I would put it. The answer to our question is, yes, God is present to deliver his people, even when God seems absent. And so I would put to you that Esther, the book of Esther, is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. The book of Esther is the book that tells us that God is at work to bring all things together for the good of his people and for his glory, even when things don't make any sense to us. And specifically, our text reminds us that even though God seems silent, he will judge the wicked and he will vindicate his people. And the book of Esther helps us in this section specifically, it helps us understand how do we endure suffering? How do we endure persecution? How do we endure the oppression of the world against us? We have to believe that God is faithful, that the God who makes covenant keeps covenant, and that no matter what we experience, what we see, he is present and he will deliver his people. He will punish the wicked and he will vindicate us. That's what the book of Esther gives us. Here in the book of Esther, we see this great reversal. This is what the New Testament tells us. The first will be last and the last will be first. And so what I want us to do is as we walk through the book of Esther, verses, chapters 5 through 7, I want us to look for this great reversal and how it unfolds by the hidden hand of God. The hidden hand of God's providence. So number one. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we see the hidden hand of God in providing an intercessor. We see the hidden hand of God in providing an intercessor for his people at that particular time. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On the third day, this is the third day after the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So remember, Esther chapter 4, she knows this is against the law, what she's about to do. And she knows that her head could be cut off if the king does not put forth his scepter to her to receive her. So what does she do? She is going to enter into the royal court. 
and envision a royal court where there are ambassadors, where there are officials, where there's a general group of people. And what does she do? She doesn't just come in. She comes in all decked out in her royal attire. She comes in standing out in distinction from everyone else. She has put on everything that says, I am the queen. We're beginning to see Esther's wisdom. She is wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. And so she is all decked out, verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. That word favor is pretty prominent throughout the book of Esther. And it's, and it's fascinating to see. We're meant to see God's hand in making Esther queen. Mordecai is exactly right. Perhaps God put you here for such an occasion. In Esther chapter 2, verse 15, we read that Esther won favor in the eyes of all who saw her. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. And as we read in chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai believed God placed Esther in this position for such a time. And what we see is that God has given her favor. She is one favor, and we're meant to see the hidden hand of God behind all these activities, behind all these decisions, behind all these actions. We're meant to see God's hidden hand working through all of this. And then it says in the middle of verse 2, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. This is glorious, isn't it? I mean, we, we're supposed to sense the tension. Okay, is she going to get killed? Or is she going to survive? But she wins favor. And not only does she win favor, the king puts out the scepter and says, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Just ask. Ask me anything. And we continue to see the wisdom of Esther because she doesn't ask. Notice what goes on here. It says... In verse 4, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Do you notice what Esther did? She did not make the ask in front of the court. She wanted to get the king alone and ask him. So there's a lot of wisdom in what she's doing here. And then it says in verse 7, Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, and here you're expecting the ask, aren't you? Verse 8, If I have favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, why Esther stretches this out to another feast, we don't know. But what we do know is that she is functioning with a lot of wisdom. Rather than being exposed in the court and perhaps being denied in front of the ambassadors, rather than making the request before all the other people and the other advisors saying, no, 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 king, you can't do that for Esther. She isolates the king, winning his favor, and she is leading him on, apparently. 
What do we learn from Esther in facing the king and Haman and her approach? Sometimes God gives us favor before earthly powers to speak on behalf of the oppressed people of God. There are times where we are placed in positions of authority, power, and influence where we have a voice on behalf of the oppressed people of God. We should pray that God would work in Exodus-type ways, in mighty ways, against the oppressive earthly powers. I mean, when you read Operation World, for example, that tells you about all the nations and all the people and the Christian percentage of Christians that are there, when you read the voice of the martyrs, when you read about Christians being killed all over the world, you should ask yourself, how should I be involved in the life of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are being oppressed by governments in the Middle East. We, we should at least be praying, God, would you work in mighty ways to deliver your people from the oppression of the people of the world, the people that are against your people. But, but not only that, what if God, by his hidden hand, puts you in the place to speak up for those powerful believers? When the President of the United States decided to pull all the troops from Afghanistan, there was great chaos, not just militarily, not just diplomatically, but there was great chaos among the Christians because whatever American presence was there seems to have provided a cover or at least some kind of security and protection for believers in Afghanistan. And so in the immediate aftermath of the pullout of American troops in Afghanistan, you began to hear news about Christians being persecuted and about pastors being sought out. And in the midst of that, there was a church in the United Arab Emirates in the Emirate of Ras al-Khaimah who had a pastor and a wife of, his, of this pastor that happened to work in Washington, D.C. and happened to work in the office of very powerful people. And they began to make phone calls. And through those phone calls, they were able to evacuate pastors and other believers out of Afghanistan before the window finally closed. Isn't it interesting how God placed this couple in the Middle East at that time in just the right moment with the right connections in the United States Congress and the United States Senate to be able to make phone calls and that people that would have interest and take interest would then charter planes and make arrangements to rescue pastors and believers from Afghanistan? What if God puts us in places like that to be able to speak up for his people elsewhere or even here? Maybe you're in such a position of influence and a position of help. And if that's you, recognize you are there by God's hand. You are there by God's hand. Take advantage of that opportunity wisely. Be courageous and speak up for the oppressed, the vulnerable, and the persecuted. I grant you that Esther is a unique place in salvation history. But this is how God works. Don't underestimate the hand of God in placing believers in position of influence for good. We have a young man who last week went to Navy boot camp. And he intends on being a Navy SEAL, and he's going through this process. And he's a graduate from a university. He has managerial experience in fast food restaurant. And I just sat down with him, and I said, look, because I, I, I was in the Navy. I went through Navy boot camp, and I said, look, here's what's going to happen. You're older than most of the young men that are going to be in your company. 
You're going to stand out because of your faith. You're going to stand out because of your leadership. You're going to stand out just because of what you've done in your life. And because of your ambition to be a Navy SEAL, you're going to stand out. As you stand out, serve the people in your company. Serve the men in your company. Be an encourager. Be a motivator. Be a protector. And be a leader. Do you understand, friends, that as believers... We are in the world, even though we're not to be of the world. And we're not just to escape out of the world, but the Lord has placed us in different vocations, different positions that we have influence. And so you're free to seek those. You're free to seek political office, if that would be for the glory of God and for the good of people. You're to seek places of public service. Thank God for Christian police officers, for, for, for Christians who are serving in the academy that is hostile to believers. Thank God for Christians who are, who are in the vocations of law and medicine, who are in all kinds of vocations. We as Christians are to be a force for good in this world, seeking the welfare of the place that we live in. For the glory of God and the good of his people and even the good of unbelievers around us. When God puts you in a place of influence, look out for and speak for those with no voice. But, just as was prayed here, don't put your hope in those things. Don't put your hope in people that are running for political office. Don't put your hope in changing government. Don't put your hope even in a position of power that you may have. At best, we may gain a temporary reprieve. Temporary reprieve from discrimination, from persecution. But wickedness will continue. People will continue to do evil. They will go from bad to worse, the scriptures remind us. And in that context, we must endure. How? We endure by turning to God in faith and trusting that he will one day judge the wicked and vindicate his people. So the second point that I want you to see from this text is this. At times, we see the hidden hand of God in the downfall of the proud. There are times, even before that final day, there are times now we see God, by his hidden hand, bringing down the proud. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Haman. Here, Haman's pride is exposed. Notice how Haman's happiness is rooted in being made much of. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate... That he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even the queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am to be invited by her together with the king. He takes great joy in being made much of. This is a recipe for disaster, isn't it? This is a recipe not only for unhappiness, for a, but for an eventual fall, because we know that pride comes before the fall. But the, pride are not, the proud are not happy, are they? The proud are not happy unless they're the center of it all. And in spite of Haman, all that he has, it's not enough. We see in verse 10 that he is frustrated. 
in verses 9 and 10, he is frustrated with Mordecai that he won't fall down before him. And so in order for him to be happy, he has to bring down Mordecai. And not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. In verse 13 it says, Yet all this was worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. In the morning tell the king you have to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the normal course of the proud, isn't it? I want to be made much of. If you don't make much of me, I will bring you down so that I will be made much of without any kind of interruption. And so Haman is opposed to Mordecai, who is a Jew, therefore he's opposed to the Jews. In order to get rid of one man, he deploys, he devises this plot to kill all the Jews, to eradicate all the Jews. And to enjoy his exalted place, he has to destroy not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people. Now, we may not be Haman, and we may not be just like Haman. Look at me. We all have a little Haman in us, don't we? Every single one of us. We have a little Haman in us. We like it when people make much of us. Our inclination is to say either, look at me, or, woe is me. Piper, in his book, Future Grace, says there's two forms of pride. The strong form, look at me, and the weak form, pity me, woe is me. And we do both to get attention. It's not like we just are strongly proud or weakly proud. We kind of go back and forth, just like Haman. Look at everything the king has done. Oh, Mordecai just zaps it right out of me. We tend to go back and forth, but we're like Haman. We, we may not build wooden gallows to hang people on, but we build gallows in other ways. And one of the ways that we build gallows is with our words. We build gallows with our words to hang people on. And our willingness to hang people with words exposes a functional atheism. It exposes the fact that we don't really believe that God will vindicate us. That we really don't believe God will judge the wicked. That we really don't believe God will expose their sin. And so what do we do? We seek to vindicate ourselves. Isn't this what gossip is? And slander? It's our way to seek to vindicate ourselves before others, bringing others down so we can be made much of. God opposes the proud. So... Humble yourself before God. Confess your pride. Seek God's forgiveness. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, God illustrates how he brings down the proud. And if you don't think God has a sense of humor, I think Esther chapter 6 is one of the funniest chapters in Scripture. Here we see God literally laughing at Haman. Even in the way that this is brought about, this, this small reversal of Haman is the beginning of Haman's end. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. It says, On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written 
how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That's Xerxes. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. All right, are you paying attention? Do you, do you see what's going on here? The narrator has grabbed us. And we're meant to see the hidden hand of God behind every detail in this text. We're meant to see the hidden hand of God behind the king's insomnia. We're meant to see the hidden hand of God in discovering Mordecai's good deed in the records. We're meant to see the hidden hand of God in Haman being in the court. None of this has happened apart from the sovereign will of God. None of this has happened apart from God's providential guidance and direction through the actions and decisions, the ordinary actions and decisions of human beings. I mean, you can, you can chalk this up. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, you say, what do you see that? Maybe you can chalk this up. Okay, it's a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep, and it's a coincidence that they took out the records, and it's a coincidence that they went to the right page and the right line on the page, and it's a coincidence that Haman happened to be the first one in the court. That's a lot of coincidence. No, this is God's hidden hand directing all these things. Nothing happens by accident. God's hand is behind it all. And God's hidden hand of providence is meant to encourage us. As we read this, and as we see Haman, the enemy of the Jews, we're meant to be encouraged by God's guiding of every single detail. You may not see God at work in powerful, miraculous, Exodus kinds of ways, but you can rest assured God is at work in your life in Esther kind of ways. He is at work all the time in thousands and tens of thousands of unseen ways for your good and for his glory. Can you look back on your life and can you see God's hidden hand in your life? I mean, just, just think about it. Just as I heard the story from Alex yesterday. Do you guys know why you're in this building? You think that was a coincidence? Can, can you go back and see how God worked out details of a congregation that was here under a leadership that believed the opposite of what you believe? And that now you were gifted a building? You think that was a, a coincidence? Do you think it was a coincidence how you came to faith in Christ? Do you think it was a coincidence how God brought you and your spouse together? I mean, just think back upon your life and just take note of all the things that God would have to have done for you to be sitting in that exact pew where you are right now in the circumstances that you're in. And, and granted, look, I'm not naive. I know that you might be sitting in that pew and you think, Juan, you have no idea my life is miserable. And I speak to you specifically. 
It is in the midst of that misery that you have to believe God is for you. That you have to understand that you're not there even in that place by accident. And that even though you might not be seeing God work, He is working for your good. And your story is not written yet. If God can direct every single detail from a king's insomnia to putting the record in the right page, in the right place, to putting Haman in the court at the right time, don't you think he can work in every detail of your life? God is working all things for our good and for his glory. Romans 8, 28. And at times, God works in hidden, ordinary ways. And we can almost hear him laughing. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Okay? That's a good question, right? Haman is a proud man. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And so guess what Haman does? Haman said to the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said, hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And then, I love this part, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. (laughs) God is hilarious. I mean, this is really funny stuff. And yet we're meant to find comfort in this, aren't we? We're meant to be encouraged that even when we don't see God working, He is working. He's working for our good. He's working for His glory. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And we can trust Him to vindicate us. We can trust Him to repay the wicked what they are owed. And because God is faithful, He will judge the wicked. Verse 12 says, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him, If Mordecai before him you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the opposite statement of Mordecai to Esther. Mordecai tells Esther, deliverance will come. Haman's wife tells Haman, you will fall. She seems to understand something about the history of the Jewish people. Even in exile, there's enough of a testimony of God and his people and how he deals with his people to know you will never be able to oppose the Jews. You will never be able to oppose the people of God. 
Because of God's past grace, Mordecai seems to have believed God would deliver them. And because of God's past dealings, Zeresh is certain of Haman's fall before the Jews. God is faithful. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He will punish the wicked, and he will vindicate his people. And friends, this is our hope. This is our hope. Do you believe that? This is our hope. Israel will have temporary vindication in chapters 8 through 10. And it's celebrated in the Feast of Purim. But the vindication of Israel would come in its Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. They would go back, they would rebuild the city, they would rebuild the temple, and yet there was no king from David's line. The, the borders were smaller. There was no glory. The vindication of the people of God came through Jesus of Nazareth. The same enemy is still at work, is still at work against God's people, Satan, the one that we saw in Genesis 3.15. He is the same enemy, the book of Revelation tells us, that stands behind corrupt evil powers. He is the same enemy that stands behind corrupt culture. He is the same enemy that stands behind false religion. Satan is the enemy. And it's important that we understand that our enemy is not flesh and blood. We battle against the principalities and powers. And while Satan may turn kings and nations against the people of God, Satan is the real enemy. He is the one standing behind it all. And in this present evil world, we cry out with the saints, How long, O Lord, before you vindicate us? How long, O Lord, before you vindicate our blood? How long, O Lord, before you come and judge the wicked? How long, O Lord? And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're saying, How long, O Lord? You're not the first one to cry out that prayer. This is our longing for justice. And what we see is that Israel, who was unable to keep the covenant, unwilling to keep the covenant, has a God who is not only faithful to keep covenant, he is the God who sent his beloved son to take on our humanity to keep the covenant that Israel broke. And Jesus came and took on our humanity and he fulfilled this covenant by obeying it perfectly and then by receiving the curses of the covenant on itself and then inaugurating a new covenant that promises forgiveness of sin. It promises God's presence with his spirit in us. It promises a restored relationship with the people of God. And Jesus crushed the serpent On the cross. Jesus, our vindicator, was victorious over our enemy and he crushed the serpent's head and he defeated evil, sin, and death. And all who believe in Jesus, all who believe in Jesus, all who believe in Israel's Messiah are forgiven and will be vindicated in Jesus. We become children of Abraham by faith. And as children of Abraham, we're part of the people of God. And this is our hope. Jesus is coming again, and he will judge our enemies, and he will vindicate us. Right now, he is placing every enemy under his feet. And then when he returns, we see in Revelation chapter 20 that he is going to put every single enemy under his feet. The kings of the nations will be gathered unto him. Well, he will judge the kings of the nations. He will judge the wicked and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is our hope for vindication. Our hope for vindication is not in ourselves taking revenge. Our hope for vindication is in resting in Jesus Christ who took our sin upon himself and forgave us of our sins because we were born into this world as enemies of God. We were born into this world as children of the serpent. And God took us and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And all who turn away from their sins and trust in Christ have this same hope of justice and of vindication. So if you're just visiting here or you're not a Christian, I'm sure the pastors here would be happy to talk to you about what it means to say yes to Jesus, what it means to trust in Jesus. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. I just want to give you a little foretaste of our vindication. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. The return of Jesus Christ will be the day of justice and the day of our vindication. We long for that day. Until that day, we function in this world as ambassadors, as exiles, as strangers in this world, seeking the good of our city, seeking the welfare of the people of God, but our hope is in Christ. In Jesus, we have the hope that our enemies will one day be crushed and judged. Jesus will come again to judge our enemies and put them to shame, and on that day, we will be vindicated. And this hope is meant to inform how we live in this world. This hope helps us face injustice in this world now. So as you think about the injustices you might be facing, and I don't want to minimize those, maybe injustice in your home, in your marriage, at work, at school, maybe at the hands of government. How are you thinking through and facing those injustices? Let me just be clear. There are some things that we go and we appeal to the governing authorities and we call 911. And we're free to seek the systems of government that we have at our disposal, including the judicial system. But as believers, our ultimate hope of vindication comes in Jesus Christ and as we think about Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, whatever sufferings that we have, whoever has taken advantage of us, whoever has oppressed us, whoever has belittled us, whoever has denied us, whoever has crushed us, whoever has neglected us, whoever has abandoned us, whoever is seeking to destroy us, as we think about Christ and look forward to his vindication, the hope of God's judgment of our enemies and our vindication empowers us to endure in this present evil world in faith, faith in the God who judges and vindicates. 
And so when we think about it this way, this hope frees us from taking matters into our own hands. When you think rightly about God, the judge, and the vindicator in Christ, we don't have to take revenge on our enemies. When we think about rightly as God, the judge, and the vindicator in Christ, we are freed from seeking vengeance, and in fact, we're empowered to forgive our enemies. And we're empowered to obey the command of Jesus even to love our enemies. Because our enemy is not flesh and blood. Actually, flesh and blood is our mission field. Our enemy is Satan who stands behind all wickedness and all evil. Haman's fall points forward to this great reversal. Look at verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Then the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to have my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The same language as Haman's uh, edict. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? who has dared to do this. And in a very Naaman-like way, she basically points to Haman and says, he is the man. A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the word left the mouth As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. We see the hidden hand of God in favoring Esther, We see the hidden hand of God in bringing Mordecai to poetic justice. He hangs on the same gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. Haman's fall is meant to point us to God's hidden hand in judgment. But finally, we see the hidden hand of God in the vindication of his people. We see that in verses Eight, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Do you see the great reversal? Do you see how Haman had exalted himself and God brought him down? And how God lifted Mordecai up? Everything that belonged to Haman now belongs to Esther. And Esther puts Mordecai in the care of all of Haman's household the first will be last and the last will be first in this evil hostile world 
we need to understand that we're following Jesus into suffering and persecution and, and shame. But listen, we're not only following Jesus into suffering, persecution, and shame. We're following Jesus into death and resurrection and glory. Do you understand that? We're called to follow Jesus. And following Jesus means that life will be hard. The world will be against us. But if God is for us, what can man do to us? If he has not withheld his own son, won't he give us everything that we need for life and godliness? We have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. And knowing how the story ends helps us endure suffering now. So listen, you might be looking for God to work in exodus, extraordinary kind of ways. But I just want to encourage you, God is at work. You may not see it, but he is at work in tens of thousands of ordinary ways through the actions and decisions, even the sinful and evil actions and decisions of the people all around us for our good and for his glory. So don't look to God only to work in mighty ways. Just look to God because he is at work. Esther reminds us that we can hope in God in the face of an opposing and hostile world because he will bring down the wicked and he will vindicate his people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this encouragement, this promise that you are at work for your glory and for the good of your people. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are facing opposition, who are facing difficulties, whether at home or at work, at school. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are in places of influence and authority and power. Would you give them the strength and courage to be intercessors for your people? Father, would you encourage us when our faith is weak and we're tempted to doubt your sovereignty or your goodness or your wisdom? Give us enough faith just to take the next step forward. Help us to live by faith in you and not by the side of our circumstances. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.